right, all right, it's the Foghorn, and you know what that means. It is time for the Cavus Ships Podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. Coming up, it was a key week for the 2023 defense budget as several Capitol Hill committees moved their versions forward through the congressional budget process. And while ships, aircraft, and of course money get the most attention, a number of policy adjustments also are in those bills. We'll talk with one key congressman, Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin, about a provision he authored that could affect the peacetime role of the U.S. Navy. But first, Here's a roundup of naval news around the world. A U.S. Navy P-8A Poseidon maritime patrol aircraft flew over the Taiwan Strait June 24th after a week where multiple Chinese military aircraft entered Taiwan's ADIZ, or Air Defense Identification Zone. The flight was reported by CNN and confirmed by U.S. Indo-PACOM. As we record this, there's been no announcement, but it's also about time for the roughly once-a-month U.S. Navy ship transit of the Strait the last taking place May 10th. In the Persian Gulf, three small high-speed vessels from Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps Navy sped close to two U.S. Navy ships in the Strait of Hormuz on June 20th, resulting in U.S. protests that the, boat, that the boats, quote, interacted in an unsafe and unprofessional manner. In the incident, the U.S. patrol ship Sirocco was escorting the fast transport Choctaw County through the Strait. The reported harassment lasted about an hour, according to the U.S. The U.S. Navy's hospital ship Mercy arrived at Vung Ro, Vietnam on June 19th as part of the annual Pacific Partnership Humanitarian Assistance Mission. The ship with an embarked medical team and service members from Japan, Australia, and the United Kingdom will spend two weeks in Vietnam providing a variety of medical services while U.S. Navy teams will build new buildings for several schools. Denmark announced June 24th that the frigate Peter Villamos will operate with the USS Gerald R. Ford Carrier Strike Group in October when the Ford begins her first deployment. Villamos previously operated in 2017 as a member of the USS George H.W. Bush Carrier Strike Group, accompanying the carrier to the Persian Gulf. In new ship news, the Virginia-class submarine Montana, SSN-794, delivered from Newport News Shipbuilding, will be ceremonially commissioned June 25th at Norfolk Naval Base in Virginia. On the same day in San Diego, the expeditionary sea-based ship John L. Canley, ESB-6, will be christened by the namesake daughter, having been floated out earlier this week at General Dynamics NASCO Shipbuilding. And in old ship news... A group led by ocean explorer Victor Vescovo announced June 24th the discovery of the wreck of the famous destroyer escort USS Samuel B. Roberts, DE-413, sunk in October 1944 by Japanese warships while defending a group of small U.S. jeep carriers in the Battle of Samar during the larger Battle of Lady Gulf. The wreck, discovered at a depth of 6,895 meters, 22,621 feet down, is the deepest known shipwreck worldwide. Identification of the wreck was conclusive, with the ship's hull number still plainly visible on the bow. Roberts was one of a group of U.S. destroyers and destroyer escorts, dubbed the last stand of the tin can sailors, that bravely charged the Japanese fleet, including the Yamato, the world's largest battleship, when the American escort group was surprised while conducting support operations. 90 U.S. sailors died with the Roberts, even as 120 survived. 
three other U.S. ships were sunk in the same battle. And that's a look at just some of this week's naval news. Moving to the discussion portion of the show, we are very lucky this week to be joined by Congressman Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin. Uh, Congressman Gallagher this week, amidst a number of NDAA ads and and amendments, um, probably introduced the most consequential amendment, at least to our audience, and that is addressed in the peacetime mission of the United States Navy. For years, folks said, Uh, the battle had been between what is the role of the Navy? Is it simply to win the nation's wars? Or is there a way to quantify um, the Navy's role in preventing wars, keeping the sea lanes open and free? And Congressman Gallagher's Title X Amendment goes a long way uh, to, to solving that question. Congressman, thank you for joining us. Can you talk a little bit about the amendment and uh, where you hope this goes from here? Well, first of all, it's great to be back. I think I'm a second timer on the podcast. You are uh, friend of the pod, official friend of the pod at this point. <laughs> yeah. And as Gavis was joking, I, I, I'm sleep deprived. Uh, and to add on to that, I made the mistake of taking the Army combat fitness test this morning. So I'm like, <laughs> I'm in a weird headspace. That's a tough test. Okay. No offense to the Navy, but it was easy to max out the Navy one. This was not I got, I got tripped up on the ball throw and some other uh, events and uh, hats off to the Sergeant Major of the Army who ran it with me. It was a, it was a fun adventure, but doing it after not sleeping for 24 hours is probably a terrible idea. Um, uh, you know, honestly, um, I can't say this is an original idea. Of course, this has been a debate for a long time, and I'm, I'm sure other friends of the pod uh, like Brian McGrath and Jerry Hendricks and others have been far more eloquent in talking about the need for this, but effectively... As it currently reads, Title X, which defines the mission of the U.S. Navy, uh, directs the Navy to be, uh, quote, organized, trained, and equipped primarily for prompt and sustained combat incident to operations at sea. The key phrase there being sustained combat incident. And then later on, it says it is responsible for the preparation of naval forces necessary for the effective prosecution of war. Uh, So as I read that, the emphasis is on um, post-deterrence failure, right? It's all about war fighting, which is, of course, uh, Mm -hmm. important. I think anyone who served, Navy, Marine Corps, Army, Air Force, considers themselves war fighters first and foremost. But I think it um, overlooks what is a unique role that the United States Navy plays in peacetime and not just support promoting national interest in peacetime, but deterring war in peacetime. And the, the, so the, the overall motivation for the change was really to get at what the Navy does 99.9% of the time, which is deter war and preserve the peace. And I would argue that is not just about the Navy's mission as ensconced in Title 10 of U.S. Code, I think it goes deeper to um, the role of the Navy as described in the United States competition, right? Article 1, Section 8, Clause 13, we provide and maintain a Navy. We can raise armies, but we shall provide and maintain a Navy in order to deter war, preserve the peace, as well as promote our economic and commercial interests. So maybe I'll pause there. That, That was really the the um, the motivation behind it, uh, I just would add, I was actually kind of shocked that there wasn't any debate on it because it you're, I was kind of like messing with the source code of the Navy matrix. And I thought that there would be a big old debate, but it passed uh, on block with with no debate. And I, early indications now 
are that my colleagues in the Senate are, are sympathetic to the change. And I think a point that, that Brian McGrath has made effectively uh, is that uh, opponents of this might say, well, you're adding more missions to the Navy and you're going to further strain the Navy at a time when it's already overtaxed. That's not true. We're, ba we're basically just recognizing the reality of what the Navy does. We're adding legitimacy to the things the Navy is being asked to do and thereby giving in the Navy a stronger position to defend its interests when tough budget decisions are made. And my view, hopefully, is that over the next uh, few years, as this becomes law, it'll make it easier for us to make the argument for building a bigger Navy, which obviously we are we are not doing right now. So so uh, just specifically, what are the kinds of missions that the Navy is doing now or has been doing that you feel are threatened that brings about the need for an amendment like this? Well, I think uh, the 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 attack is usually on uh, presence missions, right? The argument against something like this is presence for presence sake is um, you know it, it is a bad uh, is a bad look for the Navy. I probably the most um, eloquent uh, and I would say thoughtful proponent of that view is is Bob Work, uh, and Bob Work has a different view of the world, right? He believes in sort of what he's called the parabellum approach, which is that the Navy should just be all about preparing for war. And it ignores sort of the Navy showing the flag uh, from day to day. I would argue it, it ignores some of the most consequential things the Navy does, like freedom of navigation patrols, uh, uh, it, you know, uh, in Indo-PACOM. Um, all the things that not only give our allies confidence, uh, but also make our enemies uh, think twice. Uh, and the idea that we can ignore that or that we can reduce the size of the fleet and spend all our time uh, in San Diego uh, training for war, I think ignores something um, uh, pretty obvious about the nature of the fight we might face in Taiwan, which is that how are you going to get assets into theater if they're not already there ready to fight? If you're all about war fighting, parabellum, how are you going to get to the fight? How is Bob Work going to get to the war in the first place? And I think a Navy that isn't already there every single day uh, is going to struggle, particularly if the PLA Navy is able to establish a lodgment on, uh, on Taiwan. Um, that, that's going to be a very difficult situation for us. So uh, I'll pause there and then you can push back. I think that last point is is the most critical. Um, I, I'm one of the, those people that does not believe that war with China um, is inevitable and has to happen. But I think that the Navy will play a critical role in preventing that, a, a, as you said. And the fact that you know we know um, from listening to Admiral Aquilino and uh, Admiral Paparo that our presence in the region stresses the Chinese. It reinforces um, our allies. It is a true competition. And if we were to you know, make the false choice between preparing for war or being present to compete and, and reinforce our allies, I mean, we, we sort of give away the first couple days uh, of the conflict. And I think that's such an important part of the amendment that you uh, you put forward, because um, I've been part of those discussions. Chris Cavus has covered them where CAPE and OSD kind of make the false choice between presence and, and, and capability. Um, and, you know, and we know that that those are not the, the types of decisions that um, that COCOMs are making because they recognize the value 
Um, have you heard, have you gotten any pushback outside of the Congress? Has anybody sort of shared that you may be thinking about this um, in an incorrect way? Or do you, do you think that this sails through? Well, I mean, my assumption is that, um, you know, uh, Bob Work will, will disagree. And listen, I don't discount his views lightly. I think, again, he, the, the, he's incredibly smart. I, I have enormous respect for him. And I, I like, I like testing my, my views against his. And so I welcome sort of the counter argument. Um, I, I, you know, unofficially, I've heard, you know, some folks in, in Indo-PACOM welcome uh, the amendment. Uh, my concern, and again, this is me, this is not based on anything I've heard. So I want to be fair to Admiral Gilday and uh, Secnav Del Toro. My concern would be that they, because I view this amendment as, as helping them do their jobs better. My concern would be if they come out and oppose it, perhaps because they're getting pressure from um, uh, their bosses in the Pentagon, uh, who, you know, let's face it, are, are mostly army uh, officers uh, with a land centric view uh, of the world. Not again, nothing I've heard from them or their staffs has indicated that. I hope we get their full throated support in order to make sure this doesn't die in conference. The only other positive thing I'd say, and I mentioned before, um, the, my Senate colleagues are, are early indications are are that they um, they support this. So my hope is that we can get it through. Uh, I welcome the debate, um, but uh, the fact that it, it sailed through in the House with with no controversy uh, was good. Uh, I should also note um, the other the other thing that that sailed through without any debate that I think is going to prove very important over the next few years is um, Rep. Luria's amendment creating a commission on the future uh, of the Navy. Um, and my hope is that that uh, continues and we get the right people to serve on that commission, because I do think we're at a point where it's going to take some outside pressure and some outside voices to force the Navy to to do some things differently. So uh, on in, in line with that, um, now, of course, we're talking to you just after the uh, the House Armed Services Committee did its major um, markup for the defense bill, defense authorization bill. This is the policy bill. It's not the money bill. Yeah. Um, so you can ask, you can order and, and authorize all kinds of things. But until we actually see the money, it's, uh, it remains a question. Um, ne nevertheless, uh, both uh, Armed Services Committees in the Senate, too, um, sort of enthusiastically plussed up, plus upped the Biden request. Um, what was your feeling about that? I, you know, the one that people are talking about the additional ships. So, so the bill adds five ships to the eight requested. Um, one of them is a frigate, which is in, in your part of the woods, the uh, Finn County Air Marinette Marine builds the Constellation class frigates. They have not yet even begun cutting steel on the first one. And this would be, I think, the fifth would be the one that was just added. Um, so whether it's in there or not, they can't build it yet. Um, there's the same thing about the destroyer. Uh, the, the administration asked for two. Congress added three. Um, the capacity at Bath is not there. They're not yeah. they're not not at all in a position to start building more faster. They will be at some point, hopefully, but they're not there yet. Um, you talked about the Navy wanted to decommission nine LCSs, littoral combat ships. You want to save five, right? And, and let, let them get take four out of service. There's no mention of the cruisers. So it looks like the Navy's move to divest itself of all 22 remaining cruisers in service over the next, I think it's three years, 
is, uh, is, is, is moving ahead without opposition. We, we heard a lot about that in previous years. We didn't hear nothing about it now. What's your take? I know, I know the ship stuff is the, is, is sort yeah. of the low hanging fruit, but it's, but it is the stuff that's right out there in front and people notice first. I, I think it's a fair criticism. Uh, I'm not going to tell you that we reversed the, you know, massive cut to the Navy that the secretary of the Navy proposed at best, we kind of slowed it down uh, a little bit. And I remain profoundly concerned about the fact that we are going to bottom out. I think we talked about this the last time I was on a little bit. We're fixing to bottom out at the worst possible time. We're, we're fixing to bottom out at the very end, or let's say apex of the Davidson window, right? Uh, the time when we think the PLA will be most capable, the Navy will be at its smallest point and we can slow this down uh, in Congress, uh, but it's very difficult. Uh, you know, obviously, I'm in the minority, so there's limits to what we're able to do, even with a $37 billion plus up, uh, uh, top line plus up. Uh, to, but really, to note though, but this this markup just passed with overwhelming support, bipartisan true, support. True. Yeah. Uh, but even that, I mean, what what are the latest estimates on? So, 37 billion. It depends on sort of what estimate of inflation you're using to. To get at a like, are we actually growing the size? We, we're growing it a little bit, but not, we're not growing it, you know, five percent. If you sort of factor in inflation, and Chairman Milley straight up told us that the Pentagon fudged its inflation numbers in the initial presidential budget request, which is cra absolutely crazy to me. So, the bottom line is, I, I would say this: as the dust settles, right, and we can, we can all quibble with, all right, what ship should we have funded? What's the defense industrial base capable of producing? The message from Congress, I think, in a bipartisan fashion is we don't like the plan that the Navy has submitted us for the future fleet. We think it's bogus. We don't, we don't want a smaller Navy. But in the absence of a compelling plan, it's hard for us to turn to our colleagues and say, yeah, we're going to build, you know, we're going to max out the defense industrial base. I actually think this would be an interesting exercise and something I think that this commission could really help with. If you just sort of suspended political reality for a second or budget reality, and you started from the point of, okay, we conflict with China is increasing likely in the next five years. Therefore, we have to prioritize the now, not the new. What is the, the shipbuilding industrial base capable of producing over the FIDIP? Like if we were pushing them to their limit and if they weren't dealing with all of this inconsistency from the highest levels of the Navy in terms of where they want to go, what the future fleet would look like. If we were saying, we want you to build as quickly as you possibly can. What would be the upper limit on that? I don't know the answer to that question. And I don't know if anyone's gone through that exercise, but that would be very useful for someone like me to say, okay, here's, here's the frigates we can produce over the FIDIP in Marinette. And hey, if we factor in another yard towards the end of the FIDIP, here's what we could really produce. DDGs, here's what we can produce. Okay, if we're, if we're buying, a, if we're doing a new um, carrier every six years as opposed to every five, does that mean you could get 2.5? Um, uh, uh, attack subs per year. I don't know. There's a way to like make this work, but you need urgency and a consistent demand signal from the secretary of the Navy, from the secretary of defense and from the president. And that's what we haven't had. And I, that's, that's not just a criticism of Democrats, by the way, 
We didn't have it in the Trump administration, right? Like Trump, I think, liked shipbuilding, but there was no there was no argument from the White House for the 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 unique role of sea power. Dare I say the primacy right. of sea power and what that entails? If any of that makes sense, makes a- absolute sense. Um, we've been talking to Congressman Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin. Congressman, we'll respect your time. Thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Uh, anytime you want to come back, we could do this weekly. Uh, we've got great stuff to talk to you about. Uh, look forward to seeing how the amendment does and look forward to uh, hearing more from you and uh, Rep. Loria and others uh, as you continue to enlighten the committee and the Congress as a whole of the importance of our Navy. So thanks a lot. Well, thank you guys. And uh, your work and your voice is, is indispensable. Uh, so please keep talking about the amendment. And um, it's taken me six years to realize that as a member of Congress, I can like mess around with the source code of the service department. So <laughs> I'm, this this is a dangerous moment. I might start submitting more amendments going forward. Let's look I at the Army mission. What's going on with that one? All right. Thank you, Thanks again. Good luck. Thanks. All right, Chris. We have a couple minutes left in this discussion block, um, and I wanted to go back to something we talked about last week um, and expand on it a, a bit more. As you mentioned and as we talked with Sam Legrone last week, um, the Chinese Navy rolled out its latest carrier and beyond the fact that it's a third aircraft carrier for the, the Chinese, I think it's important to kind of zoom out a little bit and look at the delivery of this carrier in the context of sort of the, the broader Chinese Navy. For years, we really closely looked at the number of ships in total and the number of ships they were building each year. Um, but as I talked to folks out in the Indo-PACOM, AOR, and experts in DC, they point out a couple things. And, and I think it's worth mentioning to the audience. One, obviously, is the delivery of the ship. But as I said, more importantly, is the sophistication of the equipment on, on that ship. Um, the, the delivery with electromagnetic catapults, with advanced radars. And yes, th- these capabilities have been in work for several years, but you know, maybe beyond just delivering the ship, it's important to look at some of those capabilities. Additionally, it's important to look at how the Chinese Navy is operating uh, their, their ships. You know, in addition to the sophistication of the hardware and the growth of that sophistication, you can also look at the tactics and how they interact with other navies and draw a similar parallel in sophistication. So um, I think it's, you know, as, as we get ready for RIMPAC, as we, um, you know, continue to watch closely, I think it's important to not only look at these ships as, um, or these events as significant deliveries of an individual capability, but kind of to look at them, you know, in, in that broader context. Thoughts? Well, you know, part of it is, is the lack of response in general from the U.S., uh, we're not we're not engaged in a in a building war with the, with the Chinese. The Chinese are are playing their game, and we're just kind of doing what we normally do. Um, eight ships a year isn't going to really change things, even if you know the like the the uh, the Hask bill, the House Armed Services Committee, which is what uh, Mr. Gallagher's on. Uh, their mark added another frigate and another destroyer to the current. Um, to their, to their proposal for the Authorization Act. That's pure politics. Nobody's gonna build those things anytime soon. You can, you can pay for it all you want, you can order it all you want, but the first, this would be the fourth frigate. The first one hasn't even started building yet. Um, the, uh, the destroyer 
one of the two destroyer uh, providers, Bath Ironworks, is not not up to, on the step at this point. They're not going to expand and, and uh, produce things faster. So you can order them, but but it's a it's a paper thing. Um, we don't seem to be responding, and part of it is also I, we don't really show what the Chinese are doing. The Chinese are very active. Uh, when you talk to people from the Pacific, uh, you get I mean it it takes almost almost a third of a second before they start talking about how active, how um, challenging the Chinese are, both in terms of how much they're operating, the tempo that they're operating, the style that they're operating in. They come, they come close, they're challenging, they're provoking. Um, they do this all the time. We don't show this. And this is a policy that's gone back for many, many years, um, really back to the Obama years and um, and CNO Greenert, and it really carried through the Trump years, and it's not changing now. We don't really show what they're doing, and they act like they own the South China Sea. They don't. But I've I've been in conferences. I've I've talked to Chinese admirals face to face, who will look at you and go, "It's called the South China Sea because it's the South Chinese Sea," and they act like it. Um, that's part of what. I'm always disappointed that we don't show more of that. We don't show that they're, they're shadowing us everywhere we go. They shadow everybody. By the way, we shadow them too. We could show that as well. But right now, it's, this is all taking place pretty much out of sight and definitely out of mind of the American people and a great deal of Congress. And it's just, it's just disappointing. It is disappointing. And, you know, my sense as I talk to people is that the folks out on Indo-PACOM and at PAC Fleet at some of the other um, component commands in, in Indo-PACOM would like to communicate that message a bit more. Um, I don't get the sense that they want to beat the drums of war or that they want right. to, um, you know, tip over, but I, I think they feel like um, demonstrating what they're dealing with day in and day out is an important message for the folks back in CONUS and for our, our partners and allies to see so that you have a real sense of, uh, of what they're dealing with, uh, you know, with the Chinese Navy or, or, or any of the other Chinese forces. So uh, again, I don't see the Biden administration changing um, their gag order anytime soon, which is disappointing. Um, so we'll just sort of have to, you know, wait for other third-party validation to really get a sense of what the Chinese are up to. Okay, well, I think that'll do it for our for our uh, congressional discussion this week. Now hear this. Now hear this. All right, you know what that means. It's time for Squawk Box. Mr. Cavus expands on this theme of being prepared uh, to deal with and to communicate the breadth of the Chinese Navy activity. So we noted last week the launch of China's new aircraft carrier, Fujian, the largest warship ever built outside the United States and a design packed with technologies and features new to the Chinese Navy. While it will be some years before the ship is fully operational, what we're seeing are the results of decisions made years ago, five, seven, even 10 or more years back. Like the rise of the Chinese Navy, it's all been playing out pretty much in full view. That naval growth is at the point now of looking for new outlets, new demonstrations of the expanding reach and power of the Chinese People's Liberation Army Navy. The Chinese understand the value of messaging and propaganda, and they're likely gearing up for a major demonstration of their new abilities. And I know I'm just an armchair admiral, but here's a thought. If I'm the Chinese, 
I'm looking to make a real splash with my fancy and expensive new fleet, the world's largest naval exercise, the U.S.-sponsored Rim of the Pacific, or RIMPAC, is days away from beginning in the waters around Hawaii. China is not invited, even though they were welcome participants in the 2014 and 2016 RIMPAC exercises before being disinvited in 2018. But what's to stop them from sailing a sizable force, even centered on one of their aircraft carriers, halfway across the Pacific and taking station near or even alongside the more than 40 warships from more than two dozen nations taking part in RIMPAC? The Chinese certainly have the capability to do this. They've been building a balanced fleet complete with large, capable supply ships that can support warships in overseas blue water deployments. There are no laws of the sea preventing them from operating the same waters as other ships. Even if no-go zones are declared by the U.S., what's really to stop the Chinese if they simply move in? Are we going to shoot them if they get too close? Probably not. Maybe they'll even be topside, engaging in friendly waves. Hi! What will the U.S. do if that happens? Are the authorities gaming this out? What kinds of scenarios do they envision? The videos and images from such an event could be played out in a variety of ways and not all with a happy outcome from the U.S. point of view. Even if it doesn't happen this year, there's no reason to think that the same possibility won't come around again during RIMPAC 2024. Is the U.S. Navy and by extension the Pentagon and the White House ready for such an event? Hope so. But as in all things, I really hate hoping as a strategy. Thanks, Chris. That does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Maradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. Be sure to follow us at Cavus Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavus. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.